Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And today, our guest is Nora Barakat, a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley, focusing on legal and social history of late Ottoman Syria. Nora, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. Our topic today is officially framed as pastoral nomads and legal pluralism. And when we say pastoral nomads, we're referring to communities that are sometimes called tribes or ashira, but we're also referring to a way of life, either mobile or semi-nomadic lifestyles, communities that practice transhumance, grazing of livestock on seasonal pastures, etc. And when we refer, refer to legal pluralism, what we're talking about is an interesting period of Ottoman history in the late 19th century, when there are at least three different legal realms. The um, long-standing Sharia courts, the new Nizamiya courts, which were supposed to be an alternative, modern, secular, or however we want to phrase it, another kind of court, and uh, the uh, traditional realm of custom and local communities, of course, some legal matters were completely out of the hands of the state in earlier periods and continuing through this period. And so our topic of discussion today is actually how these two topics, the pastoral nomads, the communities typically considered outside of the realm of the state to some degree, and the changing legal structures intersect. And our region is the region of Salt which I, I believe is in modern Jordan, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Salt is now a town um, in modern Jordan. It was very, very important in the late Ottoman period, but in the period of the Hashemite state um, after World War I and the, Brit- and the period of British colonialism, it lost its importance to Amman, um, which is now, of course, the capital of Jordan. Um, but in the Ottoman period, Amman, for most of most of the 19th century, really only starting in the late 19th century, was a tiny little village, and Salt was a larger kasaba, or town, um, where the administrative center of the immediate region was. And so, could you give us a little sense of what the situation is? It's hard to describe very quickly, but what is late 19th century Salt like, socially and economically? I don't have really great population statistics on the Qasaba of Salt, but we're talking about thousands of people. Um, And inside the town, you had a number of different confessional groups, Muslims, as well as different denominations of Christians, um, who were organized uh, in specific communities, not that there wasn't any overlap between them, but in terms of the Ottoman administrative structure, they were organized in specific communities. And then outside of the town itself, you had a number of villages, lots of villages, um, tens of villages, where, again, there were different um, confessional groups living and practicing agriculture as well as a certain level of transhumans. Um, And then you had people that the Ottoman Ottoman administrators called, in at least in the court documents I'm looking at, called tent dwellers. And so this is the population that I'm specifically interested in for my research. And they're organized in what the administration calls ashiras, or tribes, um, in the way that we translate it today in English. So uh, these people were also, uh, some of them were very involved in agriculture and in um, producing agricultural products, but also involved in producing animal products. And uh, to some level, being transhuman, or even some of the groups were um, more on the move in a more uh, more continual basis. a couple of the groups may have been involved in camel herding, but most of them were involved largely in herding sheep and goats. That, those are the kind of economic activities that are going on in Salt. It's a rural area. Um, location-wise, in the Ottoman administrative makeup, it's in the southern part of the province of Syria. Um, 
it kind of gets passed around administratively in the late 19th century, the period that I'm interested in, in the, when it's first really, um, really uh, established as a uh, quote-unquote modern or Tanzimat era uh, district, it's attached to uh, the Sanjak or county of Nablus, and then um, later on it gets uh, sort of detached from Nablus and attached to Hauran to the north, and then up, but right before World War One, it's attached to Karak in the south, which becomes the head of a new um, of a new county. Demographically speaking, roughly the the group you're looking at, the tent dwellers or the the tribes, what percentage uh, do they make up of the population? What is their presence? Uh, insult, Ottoman insult. We have, I mean, from the court documents that I use largely for my research, um, they seem to be a fairly strong percentage. Uh, population statistics are a little bit difficult to come by, as um, a lot of people working on the Ottoman Arab provinces are aware. Um, and also, as we'll talk about later in the podcast, I think it's a bit difficult to use the population, um, the census figures that we do have effectively because it's not clear what the Ottomans really meant by the word Ashira um, and what, what they meant by the idea of pastoral nomadism in general. But in the court documents, I've, I look at a total of about 3,000 documents over the, court, over the period, a 30-year period, 35-year period between 1880 and World War I, and they're in about 30% of the records. And I have the sense that that's about um, their strength in the population at large, about. Well, that's uh, really a surprising number, actually, although, for example, in my research on the Adana region mm -hmm. before Tanzimat reforms, we can find a similar percentage and in other parts of Anatolia. But what really surprises me about that number is that uh, these groups are represented in such strong numbers in the court records. Right. Uh, some of the conventional wisdom on uh, Islamic law in the courts, it says they're very good for studying settled populations, but that nomads and tribes handle their business separately and they don't really come to the courts and I guess you're, you're here to tell us that that's not exactly true so what's going on with that was that something was that a new phenomenon or how are the tribes interacting with the courts it's really hard to tell if it was a new phenomenon that's something I really wish I could tell you the reason it's hard for me to tell you is because the salt court records that are existing um, that we have access to begin in the early 1880s we know that there was a court in salt before that um, starting in the late 1860s, but the records, uh, as far as I know, don't survive. Um, and from the beginning of the records that we do have, they're there in strong numbers, definitely. But it's not really clear whether this is a new phenomenon or whether it's something that um, had been going on for longer. There are a couple of other researchers who have noticed um, the presence of uh, people that the Ottoman records refer to as Bedouin or as tribal or as pastoralist in the courts. Um, one is James Riley and his work on Hama, because apparently they're very, um, they appear in strong numbers in the Hama court records. Another is Astrid Meyer, who's looking at um, Hama as well as Damascus. Um, in Damascus, they, they appear in much, le much uh, weaker numbers. But I would say, based on the Hama experience, which goes back much further into the 19th century, it's not a new phenomenon. But there being a district court in Salt is a new phenomenon. So that's a little bit, um, that's a little bit, a little bit difficult to say. One of the things I'd like to do is to look back, for example, at the court records from Nablus and see to what extent they're there. But I would say, I was also quite surprised, um, that's what got me into this topic in the first place, being surprised by the number of people that the records refer to as living in tents, specifically, um, in, you know, in the larger group of court records. 
because I didn't expect them to be there based on the secondary literature. I think it partly has to do with the fact that this is a fairly rural court. Uh Um, This is a court that's not, uh, you know, the urban center, quote unquote, that it's attached to is not very urban at all. Um, I think there's there it's analogous to Hama in that sense it's a part of Syria where um the rural life is in some senses much stronger than anything that we could call urban in terms of its um in terms of its contribution to the local economy in terms of sort of where the action is so I um I think if we look at courts that sort of fit into environmental and economic conditions that are more like that we might find um these populations much you know appearing in much stronger numbers than we had assumed before um, but yes, they definitely were participating in tra- you know, property transactions, in um, disputes, in all, all of the things that were going on in the, in the Sharia court, they, they had a hand in. Well, I think that's a, a useful transition point for our conversation because you mentioned property issues. And I don't have a, a clear handle on what's going on in Jordan, although we have an excellent book about late Ottoman property in Jordan by Mundi and Swamaraz. Are these groups registering property for the first time at the court or are they transactions that are based on older legal situations that are transforming and are not recorded? What's your sense there? Yeah, that's a really great question and again I wish I had a very clear picture of it and I have a partial picture of it. Um, as Monday and Samara Smith's book shows us, uh, the, the process of property registration is going on um, in terms of like tapu registration in the Ottoman, the way that the Ottomans defined it, um, and according to the 1858 land code, it's going on for the first time um, in the region that I'm talking about during this period, so start around the eight, late 1870s and in the 1880s, um, there were basically commissions uh, of land registrars who went out and did um, did surveying and registered land in the names either of um, individuals or in some cases in in the names of groups um, in these uh, in villages and in towns in this region in the region that became Jordan but um, that doesn't mean that there wasn't a sense of ownership of the land before this type of registration process went on which gets to the heart of your question um, in the documents that I have, which are Sharia court documents that are um, that court records that are documenting uh, land transactions, what's often discussed is something that we can think about as custom, where the person who's selling the land is talking about is saying I control this land and therefore I can sell it based on my usage rights um, over a long period of time in Qadim al-Zaman. Um, and this was important because basically probably what these people had was um, use, specifically usage rights over Miri land. Some of them sometimes say that, that they've been paying taxes and sometimes not. But they definitely, um, in the period that I'm looking at, see that as enough to complete transactions in the land in the court. And often they are talking specifically about transferring uh, transferring rights to Maryland and not outright sales. Um, but it's interesting that it's going on in the, Sharia, in the Sharia court specifically because in the period I'm looking at, these transactions were actually supposed to be happening in other types of courts, which is where we get into the, or other types of bureaucratic uh, institutions, which is where we get into the question of legal and what I call administrative pluralism. But this land is land that w- it was Maryland, and it was being registered at the time, uh, at the period during the period that I'm looking at. I haven't gotten a chance to look at the the process of registration yet because um, that's documented in uh, 
taboo records that are held by the Office of Land and Surveys in Amman, but that is part of my part of my ongoing research, and I'm hoping we'll shed more light on how the registration process actually went on, which is what um, Mundy and Samara Smith's book uh, focuses on and, and, and brings out in really interesting ways. There's a couple of very important points about uh, 19th century Ottoman administrative reform and legal reform that you brought out in that discussion. One of them is, and, and maybe you're not the first to say it, but you're definitely within a trend in the scholarship that notices that the 1858 land code and subsequent land codes were not necessarily as radical of a disruption in terms of property rights Mm -hmm. in the Ottoman Empire. Previously, and this is maybe people thinking in terms of modernization theory or the spread of capitalism and private property, they've tended to emphasize this is a watershed moment in property. And what you're saying is that a lot of the property as it was being registered, at least in this region of Jordan, was very much in line with how people were previously using the land. And so there's a period where, yes, registration is taking place, but it is to some extent based on previous practices. And that's definitely something to unpack. Yeah, I should say that, I mean, the other element of the population in the salt region that I didn't talk about in the beginning um, salt was, along with some other places in Syria, was a target for. Um, central initiatives to settle uh, refugees of the, uh, especially of the wars between Ottoman and Russia, between the Ottoman Empire and Russia. And so you have this influx of um, refugees or people who are referred to as muhajirin coming in, immigrants um, coming in. And this is something that I'm looking into further and that Eugene Rogan has documented as well. But uh, there was a fair amount of conflict between these people who are referred to as Mahajirin and um, people who are referred to as nomadic over the land in the region. Um, and I think that gets to what, what you're talking about because while I t- completely agree that the land code um, was in many ways um, legitimizing previous practice on the ground, it also gave the, um, the central authorities and in some cases you know, the, the agents of the central authorities in these particular locales the legal means to give land to other communities who maybe hadn't been there for as long um, for political purposes or for humanitarian purposes or for for whatever we're talking about. And I think this was a fairly widespread phenomenon. So because of the land code, um, there was this this idea that uh, these particular communities could get tapu right or title right um, to particular pieces of land. And what I'm reading about in the archive these days is um, this concept that the Ottoman uh, that the Ottoman state had of, or Ottoman bureaucrats had of empty land. Um, and one of the big questions I have is to what extent, uh, to what extent uh, people who are classified as pastoral nomads thought about their own control of land, right? And something that in terms of how they thought about it, I might never get to the answer to that question, but um, we talk a lot about how people that we call peasants thought that they owned the land even before the land code when in a legal sense what they had was usage rights to what extent is the same true for pe- is the same true for people who are using the land for pastoral purposes in the eyes of the ottoman state it doesn't seem to have been true at all <laughs> they seem to have um very much uh defined this uh defined the right to control land in terms of cultivation but um, that's one, of, and some of these communities were cultivating, indeed. But some of them weren't, and so to what extent 
their type of control over land translates into a legal right um, is one of my questions. And it really gets, it gets hairy with the insult, or it gets interesting insult when these immigrants are coming in because in the eyes of the state, this land is empty and we can give it to um, Circassians or Chechens or, or whoever we're, um, we're, we're hoping to settle. But in the eyes of a lot of the, the communities that were living there before, it's far from empty. Yeah, and of speaking from my own research in Adana region, I can tell you that this is a a huge issue in the political economy of Adana as land yeah. is being uh, distributed to uh, refugees settled onto pasture previous pastures right. of groups. There starts to be conflicts, and it leads to escalating right. conflicts. And I, I I would say that we witness this phenomenon throughout Anatolia, basically yeah. everywhere that refugees are settled, yeah. because there's not nearly as much empty land, right. so to speak. Which as we would, think. which I think we would expect. And so, um, yeah, so that's one of the things that, in terms of pastoral nomads and their control over land, I think needs to be needs to be looked into further. Well, the next topic I want to ask you about is kind of shifting gears a little. It's about the courts, mm-hmm. um, specifically the usage of both Sharia courts and Nizamiya courts during this period. And the conventional wisdom says that um, late 19th century is not an important period for the Sharia court system. And then if you want to study the, the workings of Sharia court system or use Sharia court records, you should study an earlier period. Right. It seems silly to define the period of study based on the sources themselves, but that's <laughs> one issue. But uh, to what extent do you find that the Sharia court records are narrowing in their function uh, vis-a-vis the Nizamiya courts, or are they expanding even? Well, I mean, the the, the go-to source for this is definitely um, Iris Hegmon's work on, on Palestine, because she's really looked at the way that the form of the court records is changing, the way that the function of the court is changing in the late 19th century, um, but in terms of one specific locale and a couple of courts in, in um, Haifa and Yaffa. But I would say... There is, to some extent, a contraction of function for me in the later in the later uh, decade of my of my focus. So, starting around the middle of the 1890s and up until World War One, what I see are more. I, I don't see basically. I don't see property transactions in the court records, but that's the only transaction. The court is still ruling on um, disputes that we would classify as civil, and that according to um, according to according to the the codes of civil, civil procedure and criminal procedure should have been um, tried by Nizamiya courts. If you wanna if you wanna look specifically at the jurisdiction, um, I don't see the court ruling as much on criminal. Um, criminal as in I shouldn't say that they do rule on criminal criminal cases such as theft um, but murder I found one murder case for salt and it's a Nizamiya case that I found at the at the Ottoman Central Archives because one of the big problems with dealing with this issue of legal pluralism is the lack of um, available collections of Nizamiya court records but I definitely don't agree with um, scholars who say that if you really want to look at the function of Sharia courts, you should look at the earlier period, because the other thing that we see is that the the form of the records really changes in the late 19th century, and from the perspective of the historian, becomes much richer. So um, the, the records of the cases become longer, they have more detail, um, 
Sometimes you even have people talking in the first person, which is not something that you see as much in the earlier period. In the earlier period, the, the, um, the records of the cases tend to be like small paragraph style summaries. The cases, I mean, there's, the records are still very formulaic. I think it's very interesting to look at the way the formulas change um, and, and, and look at that from a legal perspective. But the, uh, definitely in comparison to people have found sort of stray record, Nizamiya court case records in the Ottoman Central Archives, and they're extremely rich. They have, um, you know, long records of depositions, long records of um, uh, interrogations, and they're written in the, they're, you know, recorded as, directly as the people spoke, um, which is, which is really fun to read for a historian, but also gives us, sheds so much light on sort of how things actually were in that period. So, um, Yes, they're very they're very different in form, but I think the late nineteenth century um, Sharia court records have a lot to offer, and they also don't show um, they don't show the kind of contraction that uh, in sort of the central Ottoman legal imagination was supposed to be going on. Um, the court, the records that I have are definitely not limited to marriages to personal status issues. I should say marriage, divorce, um, you know, registers of deaths or, and births, etc. Well, this sounds like something that I believe Agman calls forum shopping, right? Mm -hmm. Can you explain what's going on here? How people are able to take cases to courts that supposedly are not for the function of that type of case? I mean, what's, how, does, yeah. how do they pull this off? Well, it's, I mean, there's not, so when I'm reading the Sharia court cases and somebody comes in with, you know, somebody who's identified as a tent dweller comes in and says, you know, so-and-so stole my donkey, I saw my donkey with him, and it's my donkey, there's never any description of, you know, I, as the judge of the Sharia court, or as the na'ib in the Sharia court, have jurisdiction over this because of X. Um, it's not that clear. Like, we, they basically just go along with Sharia procedure, but what's really interesting is that the Sharia procedure... And I should say again, it's really hard to compare the procedures because we don't have a complete collection of Nizamiya court records. But the procedures in the two kinds of courts seem to be quite different, right? So as I said, in this one murder case I found from Salt, from the, from the Court of First Instance, which is a Nizamiya institution, um, it's, you have deposition, you have uh, very um, strict evidentiary requirements, everything has to be recorded, everybody has to have a record of what happened in order to prove things. Um, uh, the interrogation processes are very in-depth, whereas in the Sharai court, um, the main way of proving that something is legitimate or that something really happened is by bringing a couple of witnesses. Um, and witnesses that are, two male witnesses that are, um, that can be verified as, what's the word you would use, respected members of the community by um, other respected members of the community. And that's not to say that, evi that documentary evidence has no place in the Sharai court, because I think it has a, a larger and larger place as time goes on. Um, in the records I have, people often bring in their tapu title deeds, for example, or um, they'll bring in, they often bring in fatwas from um, the local mufti to, to strengthen their case. I don't want to um, imply at all that, that they don't bring in documentary evidence, but in terms of Sharai procedure, what they need to do is have two witnesses to corroborate their claim. Um, which is a different type of requirement than what you have in the Nizamiya institutions. And so that's sort of the, the issue that I think we need to look at more in terms of how these people are forum shopping and how they're thinking about 
whether it makes more sense to take my land transaction to the Sharai court or the Tapu office, for example, whether it makes more sense for me to take my, um, my dispute over the stolen donkey to the Sharai court or to the court of first instance. Um, so, but in terms of who has jurisdiction, there are interesting cases where, especially in the later 19th century, we get people who are referred to as lawyers coming into the court. And these tend to be the figures, and they're representing, they're representing litigants, and these tend to be the figures who will say, wait a minute, this case is not supposed to be heard in the Sherai court at all. This case should be heard in the court of first instance, for example. Um, the court tends to seem to ignore those claims mm. and issue a ruling anyway. Um, and as I talked about um, in, uh, in one of the papers that I've written on this issue, the... Um, I have a couple of cases where there's a direct attack to uh, to court procedure because to Sharai court procedure because a tax collector basically says that people who are referred to as as tent dwellers are trying to trick the Sharai court by basically bringing witnesses that will that will attest to the fact that the property he's trying to take as their taxes actually belongs to somebody else. The case is a little bit complicated, but that's a very quick summary. Um, a man who's who's recorded uh, in the court record as being from one Ashira comes in and makes a case against the local tax collector who's an Ottoman official in Salt and says that the tax collector took confiscated his horse um, and that when he confiscated his horse he said that the horse didn't belong to the man the plaintiff in question it actually belonged to the leader um, of a an Ashira in the Salt region that's generally understood to be fairly powerful, the Beni Sakhir, at least at the time at the time of recording the the uh, the case, and the plaintiff says the horse is mine. The horse doesn't belong to the the leader of this Ashira, and the tax collector took the horse from me erroneously. The tax collector is saying that the horse actually belongs to the leader of the Ashira, and that the Ashira the leader of the Ashira owes. Um, Miri taxes, which probably in this case are actually um, taxes on land that this guy is in control of, but could be taxes on his animals as well. So the uh, leader of the Ashira is brought in, and he's, you know, he's referred to as the sheikh, and he says, no, the horse doesn't belong to me, it belongs to the plaintiff, the litigant who it was confiscated from. And that plaintiff is from another tribe completely. He's from the Ashira, the Beni Hassan. The Beni Hassan and the Beni Sakhir are two very different groups in this, in this um, landscape. So why would the tax collector take the horse from this guy as a representative of the Beni Hassan when what he really wants is resources from the Beni Sakhir? And the court, they bring two witnesses who co corroborate those claims that the horse actually belongs to um, the poorer plaintiff from the Beni Hassan. And the court rules that the horse should be given back to the plaintiff. The tax collector is quite angry and says, these tent dwellers are trying to trick the court. What they did... It's like a tax shelter or something? Basically, they like that, that he says that the, the plaintiff, the one from the Beni Hassan, who's not a very powerful figure... Um, not because he's from the Beni Hassan, but just because he's not referred to as a sheikh or, or a muhtar or any of these leadership terms that are used in the records, um, already came to the tax office and tried to get his horse back, but he was told that the horse was taken because it actually belonged to the sheikh of the Beni Sakhar, and therefore it should be um, that, that this guy owed back taxes and that they had to take the horse for this reason. 
And he's, the tax collector says that after the Bani Hassan guy tried and failed to get his horse back, he and the sheikh got together and said, we'll just find two witnesses who will say that it's yours and not mine, and we'll go into the Sharai court and we'll get a ruling um, that the horse should come back. Now, or it should come back from the tax office. Whether the horse actually came back from the tax office is a whole other story. Whether um, the tax collector was then able to take his case, for example, to the court of first instance and get a different ruling, and whether that ruling, I mean, these are all the questions that I think we need, not on this particular case, but in general, more clarity on, right? Like, how did these institutions um, work with each other? How did they, who sort of trumped who in the end? Um, were, these, were these efforts by uh, local people successful in the end? I think these are all the kinds of um, the questions that we need a little bit more clarity on. And the work that's been done is really helpful in this regard. But um, I, what, what I think we're missing big time is a, a really strong collection of Nizamia court records and also in order to be able to sort of compare side by side. Um, so hopefully that will pop up somewhere. <laughs> I think those gradually these Nizamiya court records will turn up. It's uh, you know when you read Ruben's uh, book on the yeah. courts, it seems like there's no court records, but it's very counterintuitive that the courts that were established later and were designed exactly. to be more bureaucratic would have less records. Exactly. It seems no, I mean they, they definitely had because the Shadai court records will refer specifically to uh, Nizam, you know, court of first instance case record 762. I mean, there's obviously an archive out there. Um, and as I've said, some of the, the cases that got up to high appeals levels will pop up in the central archives. And so there are some researchers who are working on that and who have like basically are trying to pull together a collection. Cobble is the word I would use together a collection because they're also in all different for people who are since this is the Ottoman history podcast for people who are um, familiar with the, uh, the central Ottoman archives, the Bashbakan look, that they come up in all different um, all different collections, these cases. Right, they're not for the even record, they're here. It's just that they're in uh, individual yeah, folders. They're, yeah, they're in folders. Like, I found one in the um, in the uh, Babi Ali of Rago de Tasnif, and people find them in the Shurai Devlet, and people, I mean, they're, they're not, it's not so easy to just um, access a, access a collection. I think more likely is that we'll find them in the locales themselves. In terms of salt, the story on lots of Ottoman documents is that the Ottomans, when they left salt, um, burned everything. That's what people will tell you. Um, I'm sure they tell you that in a lot of places, actually. But uh, the extent to which that's true, who knows? Maybe they're sitting in somebody's basement somewhere. But um, they haven't been turned. They, nobody's turned them up yet. So. Hopefully, in the future, we'll have we'll have more documentation like that and be able to get more of a handle on how the late nineteenth century legal system actually worked. Well, we might actually have to, you know, we do podcasts from time to time on Ottoman sources, court records, both Sharia yeah. and Nizami. is probably something that needs a good overview because it's not as Definitely. straightforward as it seems. Yeah, so, the story you told us about the horse, which probably is one of the most historically rich stories about a horse that I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, all the all the stuff you can find out about local politics and dynamics from this seemingly meaningless horse case uh, are really fascinating. So the last question I want to ask is how are our tent dwellers, the, the, the tribes that we're talking about, how are they fitting into the larger issue of changing Ottoman forms of governments? We have narratives that either place these groups as opposition to centralization or modernization and you can take that in all sorts of directions we have narratives where they are victims and and to be fair thus far in my dissertation they they often play that role Mm -hmm. that they're acted upon and abused by um new fast emerging 
ways of controlling population right. as in never before. How do you see this playing out in, in your context in uh, southern Syria, at least? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that I got into this topic is because this population that has always been written about as either being in opposition, as you just said, either being in opposition to the state or as being acted upon um, by the state, seem to actually be participating fairly actively in processes of reforming or, temp or attempting to reform um, state-sanctioned structures in this rural area. Um, and that surprised me not only because they were there, but also because you can sort of see through the records the mechanisms that they're using to participate in that process. And one of the mechanisms that I'm talking about in my own work is um, the way that they're actually categorized themselves. And so I'm really interested in the Ottoman category Ashira for administrative purposes, um, how the Ottomans used it throughout the 19th century, whether they were trying to get rid of it or not. Um, these are some of the questions that I'm, that I'm trying to work on right now. But in, um, in late 19th century SALT, like the case that I just described, one of the implications, no matter how, and I should say that we can interpret that case in a number of ways. It doesn't It's not necessarily that the the court court uh, the tent dwellers were definitely trying to trick the court. It could have also been the tax collector um, trying to get a horse from a poor man and saying it was from a rich man. And we should I should always say that. It's kind of the case where you have too much information, never be certain what happened, right? Sure. And the court records are notorious for, you know, you think you have a really clear picture of what's going on. And actually, they're just, um, you know, playing some legal trick. And everything was decided outside of the court before they even yeah. went in the door. And I mean, there's there's a lot of different, different ways that, that the court records can be misinterpreted. And we should always have... Um, have a million footnotes saying that, but the, the um, but I think either way, no matter what's going on, this category of the Ashira in the late Ottoman in late Ottoman salt is really being problematized, right? Like, what are its boundaries? What is its um, what is its uh, valence for purposes of taxation and for purposes of local administration? Um, in the you know, in, in other work, I talk about the issue of the Mukhtar. Um, who who is the Mukhtar of the Ashira? How is the Mukhtar chosen? Um, what is the Mukhtar's uh, responsibility? Should the taxes be taken from the Mukhtar uh, solely or from the entire group? Um, I think these are all very pertinent questions. And this in in the late in the environment of late nineteenth century salt. And this is how it's through these questions and through um, problematizing these new administrative structures that these actors are really participating in a new and forming a new administrative landscape that is definitely I mean it would be completely romantic to say that the state at this time is not becoming more intrusive it 100% is becoming more intrusive all I think I'm trying to say is that the actual ways in which um, its policies get played out and how they actually affect people's lives is not a one-way process at all um, and I think I mean one of the reasons that it's frustrating for me that I can't go further back in time because of my lack of documentation is that I think it's really important um, to do what some scholars like Dina Khoury specifically has, has done this the most, I think, to think about how um, these provinces, these populations in the quote-unquote far-flung provinces um, had a hand in forming the Tanzimat as a whole, right? Like had a hand in um, or, or influence the process of, of, because what I'm talking about really is a central, centrally imagined initiative that comes in and then is sort of um, secondarily 
manipulated, right? But I think there's a larger story to be told about that, where that central initiative comes from in the first place, um, that can get out of some of these very binary, you know, are we modernization theorists who think that the state's intrusive policies are wonderful and that the people who get in their way are um, just spoilers, or are we post-colonial theorists who think that modernization is an evil, evil thing and that people like pastoral nomads are its victims? Well, I think that middle road is really the only place where we start to do social history of nomads or tribes in any sense as actual people the way we normally study social history. And it's actually a field that's just kind of opening up, you know, with you think of Rashad Kassaba's overview, thinking in the big picture, uh, a movable empire, think, thinking about how significant this component of... Yeah. Uh, nomads or pastoralists were in various periods for various different reasons and how integrated they were into yeah. what we can what we know is Ottoman society yeah and I think the the story of them being immigrated integrated economically has been has been told in a number of ways is continuing to be told and is really um, the, the most well documented um, what I'm really interested in doing is trying to also show how they were integrated in processes of legal change and processes of administrative change which of course were all tied up in their economic involvement at you know in the first in the in the most important ways but um i think it's important to think about where how they had a hand in governance as well um and in reforming the governing structures that really um really made a difference to their economic participation too well nora thanks for sharing a little tiny piece of your research with us today oh you're uh, welcome we're looking for forward to your your future results as well because i, I know it's a, also an ongoing project yes an, um, a long ongoing project hopefully we'll get the the link up to this is partially based on an article you're publishing you're in the poss- process of publishing yes is that right? it's partly it's going to be a chapter um in a new uh edited volume on ottoman legal history um and so yeah, the, the story about the horse can be accessed in a more clear way there, hopefully. <laughs> um, and But the, yeah, the larger project is just my, my long, ongoing dissertation. Well, dissertation maybe is further off, but we'll get a link up to that, uh, yeah. that publication as, as, as soon as it drops. And uh, we're also going, of course, for those of you listening at home, we want to thank you um, for bearing with us. We had a little bit of background uh, stuff although we're at Baba Ali at the archives a nice quiet spot nowhere in Istanbul is completely safe for a little healthy uh, racket of daily life but uh, we want to thank you guys and uh, let you know that we have a select bibliography on the website for those interested in finding out more about the topics that we talked about today some secondary literature it also provides a space to leave your comments and questions that's all for this installment of the Ottoman History Podcast until next time take care